Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. I was about five or six years old, and I was just beginning to understand how prayer worked and how also money worked as well. Um, and I wanted what I thought was the coolest toy that I'd ever seen in my life. And this was the Dino Riders T-Rex. I don't know if anybody remembers <laughs> Dino Riders. Uh, this was in a season where they learned in the 80s that they were doing it backwards. You make TV shows to sell toys. You don't sell toys from TV shows. This was literally a TV show created to sell toys. And whoever was on the marketing team, it worked like a charm. I was hooked immediately. I wanted this Dino Rider uh, T-Rex with the guys riding on. I mean, that is literally the most boy thing in the history of boy. I, just absolutely awesome toy. It was also a lot of money. And, I, and so I knew mom and dad weren't going to fork out that for, for anything there because it was like the most expensive toy at the time. So I decided my little five-year-old church-going self... That night, I'm going to pray before I go to bed and say, God, when I wake up in the morning, I want that T-Rex by my bedside. And I went to bed so excited. I was ready to roll because I'm like, I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to do these things. So I closed my eyes. I went to sleep very fast that night, I remember. And I woke up very fast. And that next morning, as I opened my eyes and looked beside my bed, there was a dino, I'm just kidding, there was not. God did not answer that prayer. He did not answer that prayer whatsoever. But I remember as I prayed, you know, give me the dino rider in Jesus' name, amen, I thought that that would happen, but I wasn't necessarily disappointed. I, I, I wasn't like, I didn't have some kind of faith crisis as a five-year-old because I didn't get my dino rider T-Rex, um, but I, I kind of saw this as a turning point for myself. And I would love to sit here to you today and say, as we start this series on prayer, that since then, I've grown so exponentially in the depth and passion, and I am a borderline on top of the mountain holy man when it comes to prayer. But I would just hope you would know today, I have not arrived there yet. Eugene Peterson says, there's no experts in the company of Jesus. I remember that a lot. In, in prayer, in anything, there are no experts in the company of Jesus. And that feels especially true in prayer, where it feels like the more you arrive at something, you end up back where you started. Prayer, that my journey of prayer at least, uh, I don't know about you guys and how your journey has been, it feels like the more I learn, sometimes it takes me back somewhere where I have been before, and the new steps I take are sometimes steps I don't expect to take. It's not something that ends in frustration. It, it always ends in renewal, but it is never predictable. It never feels like you really truly arrive. So there's not one of us, no one in this room that is exempt from our need to learn, I would say, how to pray. I'm sure you're here today and you probably, if I asked you, point blank, do you want to learn to pray more like Jesus? You would say yes. Do you want to grow in your prayer? You'd say yes. In Luke 11, this is where we get this question itself. It starts in verse 1. And the disciples, they were there. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
just as John taught his disciples. And here's what I found so astonishing about this request. It's not happening in the midst of this prayerless, like, pagan society. They're not uh, out there in some religionless world, and they see Jesus praying, and they say, teach us to pray. No, the disciples were devout Jews. They were literally soaked in prayer. This is one of the most prayer-saturated cultures in the history of humanity. By the age of 10, kids had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I can't even get my kid to remember the phone number right now. Like They memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. The Psalms would be regularly memorized and recited publicly. As a devout Jewish person, you would be expected culturally to pray three times a day, in the morning, at noon, and about three o'clock in the afternoon. And on top of that, you would pray on your own. But those were the, the, the patterns, the practices of prayer of a devout Jew. And it was everywhere in the world of Jesus. And yet, in the world of just chock full of prayer, they come to him still and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Why? I think it's for a couple of reasons. The first one here we see is, a, it says as John taught his disciples. In the first century, rabbis, as they would gather their disciples, they would teach them to recite these model prayers that not only kind of served as a guide for devotion and theology, but it was also as a mark of who they actually follow. One of my favorite scholars, Justo Gonzalez, points out that at the time of Je- when Jesus taught this prayer, many other rabbis and teachers proposed certain prayers for their disciples to repeat. Such prayers were also signs of identification among disciples of the same teacher. In other words, what we're doing is we're not just praying what we believe, we're praying who we belong to. The Lord's Prayer is not just a prayer of theology, it is a prayer of identity. It says, I belong to this teacher, my rabbi, the one whom I follow. And after months, maybe even years of following Jesus, they're looking at him and they're thinking there's something different about this person who's been brought up in the same prayerful culture. There's something different about the way he prays. There's something different about the intimacy with which he understands God. In one of the most prayer-soaked religious societies in history, something about the way Jesus interacted with the Father stood out so dramatically that even these devout Jews said, teach me to pray. I bet you felt that longing before. I bet that you have felt the, a world that we're in right now, like just sometimes soaked in religion, sometimes soaked in ideas and knowledge, and you're wanting something deeper. You have found that intimacy and joy and resilience in prayer doesn't come by just getting more knowledge about prayer. The disciples, they, they felt that, they see that, and they go to Jesus because they want something that goes beyond just practices, just words. They see a type of person that pours out his heart to God, and they recognize that's not in me. And I want that. And so as a church over these next eight weeks, that's what we're doing. We're asking, just as the disciples asked, asked the, the Jesus, that we're, we're asking, Lord, teach us to pray. I want our church to grow and deepen in prayer. Don't you? 
I want to be known as a prayerful, praying, prayer-soaked church. Not because that's what we're supposed to do, because when we look at Jesus and see the intimacy, the joy, the resilience that he has in the Father, I want that for us, not just because we're supposed to pray. So we ask those questions. And Jesus, as he's answering this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 is, uh, is where this begins as we move towards the Lord's Prayer together. And he has a whole teaching before he even gets into these words. He has a whole teaching that sort of sets up everything we're going to learn in the Lord's Prayer. It starts with kind of our own hearts before the words even come out. Look with me here in Matthew chapter 6. It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think that they'll be heard because of their many words, but... Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It is a good thing that as we read those words, we no longer have a problem with parading our religion around like a spectacle in our world, right? It's a good thing we got over that. Jesus' words are strangely relevant for this moment. The temptation in every generation for us, not just now, is to make a public spectacle out of our relationship with God. To take what we believe and the God we know and to treat it as a performance, as if we are on a stage. This word hypocrite in the Greek that Jesus uses, a word that I'm sure all of us are familiar with, it comes from the Greek in understanding the idea of acting, putting on a mask on a stage. It's literally someone who is putting on a different self than what is behind the mask. That's what that word hypocrite means. You're pretending to be something that you are not. You are projecting piety and devotion on the outside when there is something completely different happening on the inside. There is something broken on the inside. So no matter where we are, on our faith journey this morning, I, I hope we know there's always a temptation to turn prayer into a performance. There's always a temptation to turn our faith into a performative act, to an outward-facing devotion to God that misrepresents the actual conditions of our souls. He even says that we shouldn't babble on forever like pagans, meaning that all of our flowery language and all of the length and the volume of our prayers. You ever been around somebody and they pray really loud like that's supposed to, like, they're more devoted because they get really loud when they say it and it, 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 it can seem at times like a performance. Jesus says it doesn't matter how many words you use. It doesn't matter how flowery our language is, how theologically deep it is, how long our prayer is, how loud our prayer is. The words we speak, if they're not a, a representation of where our soul actually is, we're putting on a mask. And instead, he says, he encourages here to pray to the Father in secret. 
It even says he'll reward us in secret. I think this speaks this really powerful truth about the heart of God, is that when we are with Jesus alone, we can't pretend. When we are in secret, in that secret place, you have no one to perform for. You have only the condition of your own soul. You have only where you actually are and where you actually think and not who you want to project to the world and even project to God and to yourself. One of the core beliefs that we've spoken of often around here is that God only meets us in reality. God does not meet us in the person that we pretend to be. God does not meet us in the projection of our piety to the world. God meets us in the real. God meets us in what is actually happening internally within us. He wants the real me. He wants us as we are in the circumstances we're actually facing, in the struggles we're actually coming against. Not a public persona of happiness and perfection and piety that we often feel the need, feel the weight and expectation that we have to present to the world around us. God wants us as we are. The us that has finally stopped pretending. The us that is still struggling to believe. The us where we are right now. That's good news. That I don't have to pretend. Even in a gathering like this, I don't have to come. And I hope you know this. I hope the, the, the culture of our church is such that you know you do not have to show up with that mask on. Sometimes it takes years to learn that, but you do not have to show up with that mask on. Now, if we're not careful, however, we can simultaneously miss something that Jesus is pointing to. This is one of those proof text darlings, where you know what proof texting is? That's where you take one little verse or one little part of a verse out, and you build an entire theology on that, or you build an entire opinion on a couple of little words you cut out of everything. This is one of those proof text darlings for people who love privatized, individualized religion. It's right there in the text. It says, don't be a hypocrite. Do your religion privately. It doesn't belong out in the real world. Now, here's the problem with that. Jesus then goes and does the exact opposite. Jesus then goes and does a very public ministry all around him. He practices his faith publicly. He prays publicly. They, his disciples practice their faith publicly. The New Testament is filled with people who live out the way of Jesus in very public, public ways. Faith in the public square is not up for debate here. That's not what's happening. Do you want to tell Dr. King not to practice his faith in public? Do you want to tell Bonhoeffer in Germany, in Nazi Germany, not to practice his faith in public? No. When our faith is practiced in public in ways that are masterfully, beautifully humble and representative of Jesus, it can transform things. Jesus' command here, it's, it isn't condemning public faith, it's condemning hypocritical faith. It's condemning misrepresentation of our devotion for God for the sake of our reputation. And in this, often we do that so we can maintain power over others. We pretend because there is benefit for us and people seeing 
we are associated, at least, with Jesus. He's a mascot. Jesus was very public in his faith, and yet seemingly the people who were the most faithless were the ones who were drawn to him. The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the Gentiles of Jesus' day, they ran away from the religious. They ran away from the people who were highly devoted and pious in their faith, but they ran towards Jesus even in the public practice. They didn't run to people who did not practice their faith. They ran to people who practiced love as they practiced their faith. Do we see the difference? Massive, massive difference. Jesus is modeling for us a faith that is public without being performative and power-driven. I want to say that again because I think this is really important for us. It is a faith that is public without being performative or power-driven. Jesus did not feel the need to water down his devotion and intimacy with the Father to produce some sort of larger crowd in the public square. The problem is, though, as he did that, as he was public, he also had people around him who were doing the same thing, but pointed out, Jesus pointed out constantly that this was hypocritical. It wasn't who they actually are. They were projecting their religion. This is a question we have to ask. Am I projecting my faith, my religion, my relationship with God for the sake of my power and my reputation? And this goes back to the heart of the matter. I think that when we ask ourselves, if we want to learn how to pray, if we want to have a deeper connection with God, why? Think about that. Why would you want to learn to deepen in prayer? Think about that. If that's what you want, now ask yourself why. In telling us to pray in secret, Jesus is removing us from the ways in which our faith becomes a projection of someone that we're not. You cannot perform your way into God's love when you're alone with him, at least not for long. You cannot rely on how others see you when you are alone in secret with God. Eventually, even the words themselves, you'll find, they fall to the ground. They feel cheap. And you're left with something that can be freeing or sometimes can be, depending on your situation, terrifying, and that is you're left simply with, with, with presence, with just being present. The secret place is, is where we learn to be present to God and to ourselves, meaning we can be alone but not, not present to the God who is present to us. We can be alone, but our mind and our attention can be a thousand different places. The emphasis is not on how are you going to find that special little room that you can get away from everybody. It's are you where you are truly present with God? Are our phones and screens, everything around us that constantly demand our gaze and attention, they keep us most of the time, their biggest biggest issue in our lives is that they keep us from being here. Sometimes we're in the room, but we're not here. To God and to ourselves, we're not present. Jesus is telling us that God sees this when we enter into that place where we are truly present to him and to others, and it says he rewards us. I don't know about you, that word reward, I really struggle with that word. 
I really struggle with that word because it seems like it's reinforcing what Jesus is telling us not to do. It feels transactional. It feels like if you go and pray, God pats us on the head for being good boys and girls. And that feels like the very opposite of what Jesus is trying to communicate. In the NIV, this word reward in that passage we just looked at, it's used two times, but there are two different Greek words here. This is one of those times where being a Bible nerd pays off. It's so cool to look at what he's doing here. This first time he uses this word reward in the Greek, it's this word mythos, which means wages. It's literally what you get paid for doing your work. It's when he's talking about the hypocrites, when they're praying in public and making a big spectacle out of their faith, Jesus says they're getting what they're paid. They get it, that's it. They're getting the reward. That's what they get. But the second time when he says, when, when you go in secret and the Father who sees it will reward you, it is a different word altogether. It's apodinomai, and it means reward, to deliver, to give and restore out of one's own wealth. There is a reward present, but this is a reward that is relational, given out of God's abundance in order to restore what is broken, in order to make whole what has been left undone, in order to pay a debt, to give back what was lost. That is the promise, reward that Jesus tells us we have when we spend time in the presence of God alone. God gives of his abundance, not just transactionally giving us something just because we behaved. He gives of himself in those places, out of not our performance, but out of his love pursuing us. Do you see the difference? There's a massive difference here. And that we just get what we deserve when we're hypocrites and project our faith to the world. But when we choose presence with God and with ourselves, God gives us nothing less than himself. Nothing less than his abundance. And he takes what is broken within us and he moves us towards wholeness. He restores us. Now, we've gotten this far and I've told you nothing about how to pray at all. And that's intentional because Jesus doesn't start there. Jesus is, is telling us, teaching us to learn to pray by learning first presence. Learning that prayer does not start with words. It starts with presence. It starts with our presence and God's presence. It's learning that God, what he desires most when we pray is just to be with us. I mean, think about the closest relationships that you have. When there is intimacy in these relationships, whether it be family or spouses or kids or close friends, those are the people you can just be with. You don't have to talk the entire time. In fact, if you talk the entire time, you're probably not going to be friends with them that much longer. That's exhausting. You learn as you deepen in intimacy in relationships that you can just simply be still with one another. You can just be present in the same room. Think about the times when you've been in dark places, whether it be at, at, at the middle of the night at the hospital when you don't know how things are going to go, or at the funeral home when you find out that bad news. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, it's not the people who come and have all the right things to say. It's the people who simply come and sit in the room with you that you feel most loved by. The people who you know are present. 
So when we pray, sometimes speaking comes later. Sometimes it's learning God loves us enough just to be with us as we are without us having nothing to prove. In his book, Opening to God, David Banner, he says that for decades my prayers were were nothing more than a monologue. I did all the talking, and I never once considered that God might be doing more than listening. The problem was not with my understanding of prayer, but that I didn't take it seriously enough. If I had really believed that prayer was conversation, I would have not been so nearly as rude as I was. I would have talked less, and I would have listened more. I don't know about you, but this is and continues to be a paradigm shift for me. For most of my life, prayer felt performative and transactional. It was primarily a matter of the words that I spoke, and because of that, I have had the thought over the years many times, I'm not very good at prayer. And what I'm learning to see was what I was really saying was, I'm not very good with words. And I run out of them. I get distracted. I don't know what to say. I can't sit here talking to God this long. How do these really spiritual people do this where they're talking for hours and hours and hours to God? I'm just not super spiritual like they are. I must be, there must be something wrong with my connection to God if I can't just keep talking and talking and talking and talking to Him and really feel connected to Him. I I felt like that, but what I communicated to myself and projected to myself was, is you're not good at prayer. And what it was was that I didn't really even know what prayer was. Or at least I just knew one small part of it. I don't know if you've ever felt that before. If you've ever felt guilty for lack of prayer or felt unworthy or felt like a failure, and if that's you today, the good news is that God, as we enter into this journey together, God is not disappointed in you. He's not waiting for you to get better at prayer so he can meet with you. He's not waiting for you to get your spiritual act together. He just wants to be with you. That's all God wants. It accomplishes nothing else. If we do nothing else in these next eight weeks, it's if we can study prayer, learning, and practicing the presence of God, if we can just learn to be with God, we'll have accomplished more than anything that we can do as a church. Really. It would be monumental for the life of our community if we as, a, as individuals, as a, as a community, learn just simply to be present to God. I want to encourage us as we close to take some tangible steps toward that this week. And, and let these steps, not, this is not just homework for this week until we can move to the next task. Now, this is something foundational for our journey moving forward. I want to challenge all of us too. The first one is this. It's just make space to be with God. Meaning find a place and a time where you can consistently enter into that secret place with God. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to have some sort of beautiful studio with candles lit everywhere and and nice Kenny G playing in the background. That doesn't have to happen. Just find a space 
where you can be present. Maybe it's a chair on the back porch. Maybe it's a walk at a local park. Maybe it's the early hour mornings before work. Maybe it's in the car during lunch break. Maybe it's in the evening when the kids go to bed. Whatever it is, set apart space. Make time and space where you can truly be present. Second, as you enter into this, listen as much, if not more, Then you speak. Maybe this is a paradigm shift for you. You're learning, like I am learning, that I don't have to always talk. This is a great opportunity to step into a new framework and understanding of prayer of just being still in the presence of God and listening. If God's primary desire is just to be with us, we don't have to talk Him into being there. We don't have to perform. We don't have to have piety and devotion outwardly facing because He already knows the depths of our heart. We don't have to prove it. So spend time silent, listening, slowing down, being present to the God who is already present to you. And if you need guidance and framework for this like I do, a couple of resources I want to point you to here on the screen. We have these linked on the worship guide today. A couple of apps are, that are fantastic. The Lectio 365 app, I know some of you are already using this, but this is a fantastic app app that just helps you not only walk through scripture, but listen to people lead you in prayer, even saying, we're going to take some time and be still and be silent for a minute. We did this even, this Lectio for Families, which is the other one here with our kids yesterday morning, and it was awesome, the kids listening to these memory verses and then just being still. It's not task-oriented, it's presence-oriented. And that makes a huge difference. And so these are great things I would point you to. The link, again, is in the worship guide if you want to find those. They are fantastic to help give you a framework moving forward. Third, bring your whole self, meaning bring the real you, not the person that you think you have to be before God, not the person that you project to the world, the person as you actually are. God meets us in reality, not where we think we should be with him, so we can bring that realness before him. Finally today, anchor yourself in love. God, I want you to hear this today because I beat myself up many times in many ways about my spiritual walk. God is not disappointed in you. Don't start there. God's longing, his desire is simply to be with you as you are, where you are, You do not have to pray in order to receive the love of God. It's the other way around. Because you are loved as you are where you are, we can pray. So I want to close today just with a few moments of stillness. I want to close today in that stillness, inviting you to bring your real self before God today. All of us have struggled from time to time with projecting our piety and devotion, projecting a vision of ourselves to God and to others that is not really true on the inside. And to that, God says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned You're invited into something more. So for the next few minutes, just silently here, let's just be still in the presence of God. And I ask you, whether there's things happening in your mind or things on your phone or things that are are, are 
just flying around in, in your, your attention span, just take a second here. Just be present with God before we celebrate communion together. last few moments, if you have said nothing at all, you've prayed. If you have spoken from your heart, from where you really are with God, you've prayed. You've just simply sat and chosen to be present here today. You are this morning we receive from you the gift the greatest gift really and that is your, your presence we remember in these elements this morning the bread representing Jesus' body broken for us juice representing his blood shed for our sins your cross to reconcile us to put to death sin and shame has separated us because of what we remind ourselves of today we know we are united fully and finally in Christ we have nothing to prove to receive the love that you have for us Listening and connecting with God in His presence.